praise God. Let's just get into the Word of God because time goes on. And uh, I need you to come with me, please, to 1 John chapter 5. Sorry, Sunday school is going down. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, Hebrews, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1 John chapter 5. And uh, you turn to that, and I just want to read. Another verse uh, from John's Gospel, chapter 16, and just one verse, verse 33. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but, and it's a wonderful but, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In the words you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And then 1 John 5, uh, reading from verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. No matter where I have ministered uh, in different countries of the world, and here, of course, uh, I always find there's one thing that is common to all. All of us have to deal with it. It cannot be avoided. It cannot be evaded. It cannot be ignored. We have to consider it. We've got to contend with it. And we've got to conquer it. Because either it defeats us or we defeat it. But the Bible has a name for it. It's simply called the world. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, what does the Bible mean by the world? Well, it depends on its context. It can mean different things. Uh, for instance, in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But then here we see in John, it means something else. A different type of world, a world system, the social order of things around the world, which by and large is against Christ and against the things of God and against the Word of God. It's the spirit that permeates this world. God loves humanity. He sent his son to die for them. But there's a spirit that permeates the whole world and controls the world. Uh, the Bible calls Satan the God of this world. And that's what it's talking about. It's not talking about the trees and the seas and the oceans and the mountains. It's talking about the system that governs this world. And all of that, it's mankind in its fallen state, in its corruption, its rebellion, in its lawlessness, and its social uh, decay and moral decay. All of that constitutes the world. And it's against the things of God. It attacks our minds, our thoughts, uh, our, our, our words even, how we live, how we deal with other people. Uh, it, it has an influence, can we say, over everything that we do. Uh, and we need to be careful and we need to understand that that world comes against the believer continually. And we've got to understand that and so that we can deal with it. And so it attacks 
about every part of our lives, our homes, our marriages, our children, everything. Should this surprise us? No, of course not, because that's the world that we live in. Should it worry us? Should it cause us to be fearful? Should it defeat us? Should it make us defensive and go into retreat? Absolutely not. For Jesus said, be assured of this, I have overcome the world. And if we are in Christ, then we too can and should overcome the world because Christ is in us who has already won that war. There's battles to be fought. Of course there are. But the war has already been won and Christ is the victor. He has overcome the world. So let me this morning give you just some keys, if you will, to help you to overcome the world. Uh, let me qualify what I mean by overcoming. I mean by defeating. I mean by conquering. And it, in many ways, it's a process for us. We have to learn how to do this. Even though once we're in Christ, potentially we have all of that power and authority to overcome the world. But it takes time for us to develop and understand that and be able to walk in that authority that Christ has given us. Uh, take a, a world championship boxer, for example. Now, he didn't become a world championship boxer the first time he stepped into the ring. The first time he probably ever boxed was probably when he was a young boy in a club, maybe one of the backstreet clubs where lots of boxers ply their trade. And maybe through that, he came up through the ranks and became an amateur boxer. Maybe, who knows, maybe he even went to the Olympics and won a medal. But eventually then, he becomes a professional boxer. And even as a professional boxer, he didn't win the world championship the first time he had his professional fight. He had to fight again and again and again. But eventually, eventually he developed his skills and his abilities and his strengths until he himself overcame another world champion. And he himself then, in his world, he overcame and became a championship boxer. I'm saying that to say this, that Whenever we become believers, we're, we're babes in Christ. We have a lot to learn and to understand and to grow into and, and to grow into knowledge and understanding of who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. But eventually God expects us and wants us and wills us to win the battles of life, to overcome this world, not to be overcome by it, but to overcome it. So how do we do that? First of all, Realize that you were born again to overcome. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. That is our birthright. As soon as we became born again, then all of the potential given to us by God is within us to overcome the world. He's made provision for it. He wills it. He wants it. And if we are born of God, then we can and we should and we will, by God's grace, overcome the world. 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, Thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. Now, sometimes it's a real battle and a struggle. It's not just something where you click your fingers and it's over. Sometimes the battle and the struggle is long. But we keep on and we fight and we understand our position in Christ and we fight until we win, until we overcome whatever is trying to overcome us in the world. Colossians 2.15, Paul also said, Having 
speaking of Christ, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And so the cross for us puts us in a position to be an overcomer. Before we ever came to Christ, we were continually being overcome by the world. We were taken up by how this world thinks, how this world acts, what this world does. We were swept along on that broad road. But once we came to Christ and became born again of God's Spirit, then things began to change and we began to see us differently. We began to see us in Christ and the authority that He has given us and the power that He's given us and the grace that He's given us to be able to overcome in this world. So realize that you're born again to be an overcomer. God expects it. He wants it. He desires it. And then secondly, use the faith that God has given you. 1 John 5, 4. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Just our simple faith in God. Our, our, it's, it's our greatest weapon. It's our greatest asset. Our, our simple trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a fantastic thing for us to be in and to know and to have in our lives. That faith that he has given us. God has dropped into us faith. Now, everybody has common faith. Uh, none of you has had to think for any second before you sat in that chair this morning. You knew that chair would hold you up. You've done it a thousand, ten thousand times. Never even thought about it. But then there's another type of faith that's supernatural faith. The faith to believe God for something. The faith to believe God for your whole life. The faith to believe God to take you into the glory one day. The faith to give you the strength to go through this life as a born-again believer, fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's supernatural faith. And God has given us that faith. God has given us the measure of faith. Whatever you're going through, there's a measure of faith that God has given to you and for you for that thing. It's the measure of faith. Whatever you're facing, there's a measure of faith. Peter calls it the manifold grace of God. And many said it, grace of God, and through God's grace, he imparts faith to you, a measure of his faith in order for you to overcome what you are facing. We are saved through faith, aren't we? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you're saved through faith. Not, not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works so that none of us can boast. So you see, God gives us the very gift that we need to overcome. You know, I've, I've often said that whenever our children are growing up and it comes our birthdays, sometimes when they're very young, they come to us uh, and they maybe ask us for some money so they can go out and buy us a present for ourselves. And, and it's a bit like God gives us what we need to respond to him. But it's a gift that he gives to us. And it's a wonderful gift, the gift of faith. Justified by faith, Romans 5 and 1. We're made righteous by faith. We please God by faith. In fact, without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11 and 6. We receive wisdom by faith. If we trust God, God will give us the wisdom for whatever we're going through. And we walk by faith and not by sight. Whenever the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, when he's talking about uh, the spiritual battles that oftentimes believers face, and, and it's, a, it's a warfare, he said, 
And he says, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So it's not people we're fighting against, but it's what's inspiring those people to say, come against us as believers. And he talks about the, the offensive and defensive weapons that God has given us, the armor of God. You know it so well. And one of those things he talks about is the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Now, Paul was, <laughs> he was observational. He, I mean, he, he saw many, many Roman soldiers. He saw what they wore, and he looked at it very, very carefully, and he, he spiritualized it. He got a spiritual lesson out of it. And he looks at all those pieces of armor, what they wore, what they had in their hands, and he was able to see a spiritual lesson in that. And one of the things was the shield of faith, he called it. Now, it's interesting the word that he uses because Roman soldiers had two shields. They had a little round shield, which was a ceremonial shield. And that would be whenever they'd be on parade, say in Rome, and maybe it'd be Caesar's birthday or something. Or maybe they were conquering heroes, come back to march through the streets of Rome, and they would be all dolled up in their, in their gear. And they would have this lovely, ornate, little round shield. Now, that was lovely. It was decorational. It was ornamental. But that's not what they had in the battlefield. And Paul uses the word that they use for that shield. And, and, and the, the same Greek word means door. Something that's oblong, you know, in its length and its breadth. And it's like a door. And it was made of a wooden frame. And it was overlaid with many layers, maybe up to five or six layers, of leather interwoven to make it really, really strong. And there'd be a metal run all around it to keep the, the leather tucked in. And so it was a tremendous defensive weapon. And so when arrows would come, they would put the shield up. And because of the thickness of the leather and the way it was woven, it didn't get through. And they used it very, very carefully. And, and oftentimes, if arrows was coming from above, they'd put it above their head. Sometimes a group of them would march forward into battle and, and there'd be two sides of them and back in the front all with their shields up and the ones in the middle had the shields over their head. So it'd be like a, like a turtle moving across. And so it was very, very effective. And the Roman soldier every day had to oil that leather because in hot countries, hot climates, it would dry out and it would crack, it'd become ineffective. So they would oil it every day to make sure it was, it was fit for battle. And then if they were coming against the enemy who was firing... Uh, combustible arrows, fiery darts. They would soak it in water so that when the darts hit it, then it would extinguish those fiery darts. And Paul talks about that. The shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one that comes against you. And so this was a, a wonderful offensive weapon that they had, this shield. Now, the shield they clipped when they weren't using it, they clipped it onto their belt because every Roman soldier had a belt and they had his sword and his belt and different things. Uh, and Paul called it the belt of truth. You know, like God's word, his truth. And so the shield of faith was attached to the belt of truth. You know, faith and the word of God goes together. Doesn't it? It goes together. Romans 10, 17. It goes together. Faith and the word of God is together. Uh, we have faith through the word of God. And the more we understand the word of God, the more our faith is strengthened by the word of God. And so 
He says, taking the shield of faith. Above all, taking the shield of faith. And two words are used for that. are compounded into one word, ana lumbano. Ana lumbano. And it's ana and lumbano. It's two words put together. And ana just means again, to repeat again. And lumbano means to take up, to lift up. So you put the two together. It's to take up again, to lift up again, the shield of faith. Because sometimes we, we let our shield of faith down. Sometimes we get tired in the battle. And sometimes it's long, the battle, and we let our shield of faith down. And when we let our shield of faith down, then those fiery darts, they're a lot worse on us because we've let our shield of faith down. They're not deflecting them anymore. And so Paul uh, talks about our faith. The faith that he, God has given us is a real key in overcoming this world and all that it entails that we live in. And then, thirdly, get into agreement with what God is saying. Get into agreement with what God is saying. When we agree with something, we say what it says and we do what it does. We say what it says and we do what it does. Because this world is contrary to the Word of God. It's absolutely contrary to the Word of God. Almost everything we watch in the media, if you listen it long enough, you'll spot it. It's contrary to the Word of God. Because they don't believe in the Word of God. They don't want the Word of God. They're against the Word of God. Whether knowingly or unwittingly, they're against it because that's the spirit of this age that we live in. That's what the world does. In Romans chapter, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul speaks of this. In Romans chapter 1, Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, who put down the truth, who suppress it, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, note that, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. To professing to be wise, they became fools. Because they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They suppressed that feeling when man looks up and he sees the universe around him, and when he looks to the world around him, he cannot believe other than there must be a God. This just didn't happen. Even though that's what they say, this just happened. Even though that's what they preach, this just happened. Even though that's their mantra, that it just evolved out of nothing. But in their heart of hearts, they know the truth. God has revealed it to them, but they suppress that. They put that down. That's what that means. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I've been reading a book recently. In fact, I've read it twice. It's very, very, very well written. Very well researched. The guy who wrote it, he traveled the world uh, talking to top biologists and scientists and so forth. 
And, uh, and so he has really done a tremendous job. And he's written it in such a way that it's easy to understand. You're not bamboozled when you read it. But it's just amazing, the stuff that he tells you about the human body. And over and over again throughout the book, he, he wonders at the marvel of the human body, the complexity of our circulatory system, of our blood system, of our skeletal frame, of our skin, of our brain, of our lungs, of our livers, everything. It's amazing. And, and he's astounded at how good it is and how wonderful it is. And let me just give you some of the things he said. Let me just quote you a couple of quotes. He said, no matter what you pay or how carefully you assemble the materials, you're not going to create a human being. You can call together all the brainiest people who are alive now or have ever lived and endow them with complete sum of human knowledge and they could not between them make a simple living cell. <laughs> so he acknowledges that it would be impossible. And then he says, it remains a slightly humbling reflection that about a million times per second our bodies do something that all the science of the world put together so far cannot do at all. Every second, a million of your red blood cells die. And every second, another million takes its place. And he says all the brains in the world could not do that. It's impossible. And then he talks about, altogether it takes seven billion, billion, billion atoms to make you. Now this is where he gets contradictory, isn't this? No one can say why those seven billion, billion, billion atoms have such an urgent desire to be you. He said, they are mindless particles, after all, without a single thought or notion between them. Yet somehow, for the length of your existence, they will build and maintain all the countless systems and structures necessary to keep you humming, to make you, you, to give you form and shape and to let you enjoy the rare and supremely agreeable condition known as life. Now, throughout this book, even though he acknowledges the wonder, the complexity of the human body, never once, ever, in the book, does he give God credit. He credits evolution. He's an evolutionist. And yet he looks at all of that, has examined all of that, can't understand any of that, but yet he will not acknowledge God. He suppresses that truth. You see, he, he, he contradicts himself. He talks about ourselves. These are mindless particles, after all, without a single thought or notion between them. But then how do they perform? How do they make us us? How do they maintain us? Where do they get that knowledge and understanding to do that? What motivates them? What drives them to do that? There's no answer to that. None of them have an answer to that. It's only God. But rather than acknowledge God... They'll acknowledge, they'll tip their hat to evolution, which they don't understand, really. It's just guesswork, really. But that's what Paul says when they suppress the truth. That's the world that we live in. That's what we have to deal with. If you say you're a creation, if you be God, you'll be laughed out of court. There's people whose top scientists have lost their jobs because they believe that. They've been kicked out. But that's the foolishness of this world. That's how this world thinks. That's how it operates. That's what we're up against. So that's why we have got to get into agreement with what God is saying. This is our textbook. 
This is the thing that we look to. This is what gives us our worldview. Not what's out there, but what's in here. And what's in here will contradict much of what's out there. So we need to know what's in here. In Galatians 5, 16 to 26, which we're not going to read, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. If you ever wanted to know the difference between the world and the kingdom of God, look no further in Galatians 5 and see the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. It's in bold relief. You cannot miss it. That's the difference between us and the world. 1 John 2.14, John says, I write unto you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. Ah. How will the word of God ever abide in us unless we imbibe it, unless we feast on it and live on it and eat it so that it abides in us? In Joshua 1 and 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. I, I, I love the psalmist David. I love his love for the word of God. You know, when you read Psalm 119, it's the longest psalm, and every verse is about the Word of God. It's statutes, it's commandments, it's laws, it's ordinances, and he loves them. And he says, it's like honey to my mouth when I eat it. He just loves it, and he meditates on it day and night, he says. Let me ask you a question. Is this Bible of yours, is it open from one week to the next? Because it ought to be. Are you abiding in the Word? Do you read the Word? Do you meditate on the Word? Do you come to hear the Word preached? Because it's so, so important to overcome this world that you be filled up with God's Word. Sally and I were driving somewhere yesterday and the subject came up because she, she's reading through uh, the Bible this year again. She's done it several times and we're just talking about that. And I, and I quote it Spurgeon. <laughs> Spurgeon. He says, some people's Bibles, there's so much dust on them, he says, they could write damnation across it with their finger. <laughs> <laughs> and even though that's funny, but it's serious. Uh, you know, I, I used to joke that there's a little shelf at the back there on that table and there's Bibles there that people's left behind. Sometimes they're lying there for weeks. They don't even know they left it behind because I haven't even lifted it for weeks. <laughs> it's only when, when something, they go, oh, where's my Bible? Oh, I can't find it. Oh, it's been in church for the past six weeks. That's why you can't find it. So we need to get the word of God into us. In, in Matthew chapter 4, uh, in Matthew chapter 4, it says, then Jesus, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Now he, he didn't have a Bible in his hand. The word of God was in his heart and it was in his mind. 
And he, he knew that we say, well, he was the word of God made flesh. But in this humanity, when he was growing up, he had to learn the word of God like any other young Jewish boy from his mother's knee, probably and then the synagogue, until he was saturated in the word of God, until it filled him. And then when the temptation came, when the trial came, when problem came, the first thing that comes up out of his mouth is the word of God. He didn't have to go and search for it. It was there, right there. He knew the exact word he needed to overcome the evil one. Then the devil took him up into, a holy, into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Now the devil can quote the word of God too. But when he quotes it, he takes it out of its context and he does it to try to trick us and fool us. And many a, there's many a cult today that started out orthodox but became fooled by the devil and read scriptures wrong and was misled because they took the wrong meaning and, the, and they didn't get it right. And they went off track and became a cult. So the devil takes them up to Pentecost said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, Psalm 91 and 11. And again in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. 91 verse 12. But Jesus said unto him, it is written again, you shall not tempt, you shall not put to the test the Lord your God. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16. He just, it was just right there. He just had it. Right, just on the tip of his tongue, the exact word he needed. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6.13. Now, the beauty of that is that the very thing that Jesus used to defeat the enemy is the very thing that's available to us today. Over 2,000 years, nothing has changed. The weapon that Jesus used against the enemy was the Word of God, and that's the chief weapon for us today. After 2,000 years, that hasn't changed. And the more we know the Word of God and understand the Word of God and remember the Word of God, then in difficult seasons and times, whenever we're being tested and tried, whenever we're up against it and the world, the flesh, and the devil's coming against us, then the Word of God can come up in our hearts and up in our minds. I wish, I wish we were as good at Jesus as that. I wish every time we got that phone call or that letter or that whatever, I wish the word of God just would immediately just jump up in our hearts. But the truth is, usually panic's the first thing that comes, isn't it? If we're truthful, it's usually panic. If it's bad news, it's panic's the first thing. And then we settle down. And then we're to think, well, let me see, what does God say about this? What does his word say about this? And if you have been reading and meditating and, and thinking about it and mulling over it and then the word of God will begin to come into your heart and into your mind. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now it means the power of his word. Definitely means that, but it doesn't say that. It says the word of his power, letting us know that his 
his word, his power was expressed through his word. When he gave his word, something happened. And God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. And something happened. His power was expressed through his word. And even Jesus in the New Testament, how many times did he just speak the word? The Roman soldier said to Jesus, when Jesus was going to come and heal his servant, he says, you don't need to come. You don't need to come. Just speak the word only. I know all you've got to do is speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. And Jesus was amazed. He had found such faith in Israel from a Roman soldier. Get into agreement with what God is saying. Not what the world is saying, but what God is saying. Then look to the greater one inside you. 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Who's the them that he's talking about here? You've overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. The church, you know, right from its inception, I mean, it wasn't wasn't very old. It was very, very young, the church, whenever it was being infiltrated by false teachers and false teachings. Because Satan knows that that will destroy and rack the church. He knows that. And so that's what he does. And all down through the 2,000 years since the inception of the church, you can see that. You can see how false teaching has come in again and again and again. And it's here with us even this very day. It's with us today. There's lots of stuff out there that you would not hardly believe has come into the church. You can't believe that people believe it, but they do believe it. And it does great damage and it hurts the kingdom. But that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to sow the tares among the wheat. The them was the false teachers, suggesting spirits, the spirit of error and isms and schisms and anything and everything that would come against the the Christ, that would come against or, or, or stand in Christ, that would come against the things of God. That's the them. Anything that reduces Christ's lordship and his deity and his power and his glory. That's the them that John was speaking about. And the them is still with us to this day. So we've got to be alert. We've got to be on guard. You know, Jesus said that in the last days, and I believe that we're in the last days now, he said deception will appear so real that even the very church, if it's not careful, even the elect could be deceived. That's how close deception will be in the last days. And in Matthew 24, 24 and 25, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. If possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Ah. But you see... Would you not think, well, if it was a sign and a wonder, well, surely that would be God. That couldn't be anybody else, only God. But no, he says, no, no. He says, it's given to deceive. You know, whenever Moses threw down his rod in front of those Egyptian magicians, his rod turned into a snake. They threw theirs down, and they turned into snakes. 
You see, some people think, well, the devil has no power. He does. Of course he does. And he's great powers of deception as well. Deceives the whole world, the Bible says. Let's not be silly and daft and thinking that we know Christ's power is greater. We know he's the greater one. We know he's overcome the world. But that doesn't mean to say the enemy doesn't have any power. And in the last days, Jesus said, there's going to come signs and wonders that will, if possible, even deceive the very elect. So we've got to be very careful. And you know, we're people that want to see the power of God. We would long to see the power of God. We would long to see mighty signs and wonders and miracles. Wonderful. But, he says, be careful. Be careful what it would lead to. You see, if a sign and a wonder leads you away from Christ, then it's not the devil. It's not of God, isn't it? And that's what happened to some of these false Christs over the centuries that arose. So we need to look to the greater one who is inside us. That's what we need to look to, to make sure that we're looking to the right one. In Ephesians 4, in verse 11, it says, And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Ha. Huh. Hmm. You be no longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Now there's some people in certain segments of the church today that say that doctrine, oh we don't want doctrine. You know it divides people and it's controversial uh, and, and you know we shouldn't get hung up in doctrine. Well evidently Paul didn't think that. <laughs> in fact Paul wanted Timothy and the young pastors to preach doctrine good doctrine. He says, because the day is coming when people won't want sound doctrine, having itching ears. Want to heap onto themselves teachers having itchy ears. Just want to hear what they want to hear. But Paul said to teach sound doctrine. That's why over these years I have tried my best over the years to teach you about sanctification and redemption and, and, and all the cardinal doctrines of the Bible. Adoption. It's everything to do with the cardinal doctrine. Why? To keep you straight. To make you understand what you believe. Believers need to believe and understand what they believe so they're not deceived. Because many a, a Christian who didn't know the word of God, who didn't know the sound doctrine, has been deceived and been cut off. And got into all kinds of foolishness and nonsense. And then as we Begin to close here. Consider the name of Jesus. Philippians 2, 9-11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Peter writes, 1 Peter 3, 22, talking about Jesus, He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. 
Now, the name of Jesus is not a talisman. It's not an abracadabra. But it's powerful. It's a powerful, powerful name. And Satan hates the name of Jesus. He hates it. Why do you think the name of Jesus is the most blasphemed name on the whole earth? Why do you think that? Because Satan hates it. And he wants it blasphemed. Do you remember the Sanhedrin said to Peter and the early disciples, not to preach in that name. <laughs> oh, that name. And boy, that was the very thing they preached in, that name. <laughs> this Jesus whom you crucified, boy, they preached that name. And Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, the other had a riot or he had a revival because he preached that name. And you say, well, that name, it, it's, it's okay here. Well, there's some countries today, if you went out speaking that name, you'd maybe get your head taken from your shoulders. You'd maybe get in prison because you believed in that name. It happened 2,000 years ago, and 2,000 years later, it's still happening because Satan hates the name of Jesus because it's a powerful name. And it's a name that's been given to us. We go forth in that name. We pray in that name. Amen? We go forth and we believe and trust in that name. And it's a powerful thing. The mighty name of Jesus. And every single tongue, including the devil himself, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All those blasphemers one day on their knees will confess that he is the Lord. That name that they despise. Now some unwittingly do it. Don't even think about it. Now think about it if it was Muhammad. You'd be thinking about it then, all right. But when it's Jesus, don't even think about it. It's just a, just a curse word. Just a throwaway line. But one day, they'll confess that he is the Lord. Glory to God. Oh, I had more, but our time is gone. Our time is gone. Time goes so quickly, doesn't it? Come, we pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have not left us defenseless. You've given us every weapon in our armory that we need to defeat this world. This world that we live in that's so deceived, that's so against Christ in so many ways, that we have to live in every day, that we're bombarded with stuff. But Lord, you have given us all that we need to overcome the world and to live as strong, true believers in Christ that will stand up and stand for faith and trust in Jesus. So we give you thanks. So Lord, give us the courage and the grace every day to go forth in your name and to trust in you and to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And we'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 